Tonight I'd like to begin by sharing with you just a few lines from a poem to help uh, frame the reflections I want to share with you. It's a poem by W.S. Murren called The River of Bees. And I appreciate the poem because it is, it's a poem about a journey, just as all of us are here tonight, really together on this journey. I'd say mostly this internal journey, which hopefully you've noticed by now, right? It has its ups and downs and its storms and its sunny days. And all of that can be happening in just one day. And I want to set the stage for this poem because I just want to share with you just a few lines, just the last few lines of it. And it's a poem about a dream that he's having. And in this dream, he's he's searching, he's looking, he's on this journey to get a sense of how to navigate, how to navigate this, you could say, this activity of living and dying that all of us are involved in. And the action of the, of the poem is he's going from door to door looking for the answer. And then at the end of the poem, he comes to this door and he says, on the door it says what to do to survive. But we were not born to survive, only to live. On the door it says what to do to survive, but we were not born to survive, only to live. Each time I read these these lines, I, I think there's something new that comes to me around this. I think there's a, the obvious sense that I get from it that that uh, it's so obvious, right? We, we we were we were not born to survive. <laughs> we're actually not going to survive, which is a difficult thing to remember. We're only meant to live. And I find that this path, this practice, allows for this reorientation. I think one of the things that attracted me to this path is really seeing that I have this mind that's so caught up in merely surviving, merely managing my experience, trying to to control it in some kind of way so that I can somehow survive, sometimes feeling threatened or worried or concerned. And it really comes down to these kind of this, this quality of reactivity that, that is so often talked about on this path, this, this reactivity of grasping onto experience, desperately holding on or pushing something away or checking out, really is an attempt to survive in some manner. And then this invitation, this invitation to simply live. What a turn. Can you step out of merely surviving and into actually living. Actually living your life rather than surviving your life. And I want to acknowledge there's, there's a place for that frame of survival. It's just I'm, I'm offering you a, a different poetic expression of this path. And it's not only in my life that I see that, I I have to admit, I have to be honest with you, there's been so many retreat days that I've had in my history of retreat practice where I'm just surviving. (laughs) I'm just trying to get to the end of the day, maybe the Dharma talk where I can relax. (laughs) I remember I was a Zen monk and um, during our our training season, which was the summer and winter, we'd eat, each month we'd have a, um, we'd kind of always be in, in, in retreat, but uh, for one week of the month, we'd do something called die session, which is this really intense seven-day session. And um, it was hellish. I don't know why. Sometimes I wonder why did I become a Zen monk for all those years. I mean, it was great, but it was difficult. And it was so difficult uh, that one of the things that would happen in the evening, which was so cool, is that we would have this formal tea in the meditation hall in a very ritualized way that, that you see in, in Zen. 
But in the evening, only on uh, Daisoshin, you'd get a cookie. <laughs> and sometimes I was just surviving for the cookie. <laughs> So I just want to acknowledge that that can be retreat life too, is just just surviving. I wish we could give you cookies, right? <laughs> this is your paltry cookie tonight, is this Dharma talk. And to actually move into to living, and we're giving a very, very particular way of moving into living, which is to move into living through noticing, through being present to what's going on. So we're giving you, and sometimes very clear, a clear concrete path to this. Just to be with, to notice what's going on. Because that's the gateway into actually living. And tonight what I want to share with you is just one of these gateways into living, into this path. Some specific things that you can start to be sensitive to, that you can open up to in your practice. And it's going to be around this essential teaching that you find in Buddhism, uh, which is called uh, uh, Vedana, which is usually translated as feeling tone. It's the second foundation of mindfulness. And you'll, you're, you'll hear around this teaching, the Pali word Vedana, how what hinges around this is really our freedom and our suffering. And this is essentially what the Buddha taught. He said, I, I teach only suffering and the end of suffering. That's the scope of what I'm sharing with you. In this teaching on Vedana, you'll see how it intertwines so closely with this, the, 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 heart, of, the heart of the matter. <coughs> to move out of merely surviving and into, into living. Vedana, as I mentioned, is usually translated as feeling tone. And it, it refers to a specific aspect of our experience. The specific aspect that each moment of your experience is going to have one of three flavors. It's either going to be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And it can be very helpful to start to become sensitive to if experience is one of these three flavors. And noticing this again and again and again. Because this is a real key condition that's there that gives rise to either our freedom or our suffering. And it's there every moment. Like if just right now, if we just slow down with this present moment experience. That tone to you, and it might be different for different people, it might be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And you have a sense of it. It's really quite immediate. You don't need to think about it, right? It's just noticing it might have one of those flavors. But there could be other things, right? That might be a little different flavor there. (laughs) And you know it. There's the sense of that. That's what we're keen into is that aspect of experience. And the Buddha said that this is, this is a, um, this comes with every moment of experience. So I just want to divide this up a little bit about how the Buddha sp- spoke about the construction of our momentary experience because it's really quite fascinating. He says that the, that the primary aspect of experience is, is contingent on these three qualities, these three aspects. One is, is that there is a sense object So that would be a sound, a sight, it could be a thought even, it could be a sensation. One of these aspects of our experience. And then you have um, a sense organ that can sense it. There's an ear or an eye or a mind that, that is sensitive to the thought. And then you also have what comes with that, a moment of consciousness. And when those three things come together, you have a moment of experience, right? So there's a sound, there's an ear that functions, and there's an ear consciousness. So there's, there's the activity of hearing that happens. And each experience of contact, these three things coming together, is going to be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The 
this is important to get a sense of because what you're going to see is, is, what is what hinges upon contact, what's called contact, and then Vedna, this feeling tone. Because this is where uh, there's this big hinge in our lives where there can be experience simply being pleasant, unpleasant or neutral, or experience being, for example, unpleasant and then filled with reactivity and aversion, or pleasant and filled with grasping, or neutral and filled with checking out. And here we have the gateway into our freedom or our suffering is right around this. Is what is the mind doing with these three flavors? And so I want to give some examples of this so you can get a feeling sense of this and really come at it from all different kinds of angles so we can get a sense of how this functions. And I want to begin with a, a, a phase in my practice where I didn't completely understand this teaching of Vedana or this, this, the unfolding of this path towards, you could say, our freedom or our maturity. And again, it was when I was a Zen monk. And another aspect of when I was um, in training is that all of us who are ordained would take turns in the kitchen. So you can probably hear right there what a practice that was, right? <laughs> All of us that really didn't have much training in cooking. And it wasn't like somebody trained you how to cook. It's like you really learned on the job. And also what came with that is there was this rule at the Zen center, at the Zen monastery, is that you couldn't comment on the food which is really good. <laughs> so you couldn't even say, wow, now that, was, that breakfast was really good. Right, because there could be implied about the breakfast before or the breakfast before and the breakfast he wanted. So there were no comments about the, the food. And I remember a brother monk of mine was in the kitchen and at least it felt like that every morning he would serve oatmeal with raisins in it. And oatmeal with raisins in it is an unpleasant experience for me. <laughs> it's very unpleasant. It was amazing what my mind would do with this in the silence and not being able to talk about the food is like after like a few days of this or a few weeks, it'd be like, I know he's doing this intentionally. I know he's totally being <laughs> passive aggressive. He knows I don't like raisins and he's, he's doing this to me just to make me angry. I can feel it. You ever have those thoughts? You, know? <laughs> you can like read their mind. You know that they're attacking you. And I thought, the way I thought about it was that if I was finally able, if I could finally get to a point in my practice where this was a pleasant experience, then, then that's the taste of freedom. Once raisins in my oatmeal becomes a pleasant experience, my mind is free. So I want to point out that's not the practice we're doing. <laughs> and this is important because this impulse can go quite deep. The impulse of there will be freedom in my life, there'll be ease in my life when there's more pleasant experiences in my life. And my retreat is going better when there's more pleasant experiences. And I even feel like I'm more on the path when there's more pleasant experiences. And when I'm finally awakened, it's all going to be pleasant. You ever have this thought? And have you noticed how it functions on retreat? I mean, we judge our lives around these three feeling tones that we don't have, we have very little control over. Life is great when it's pleasant and it's horrible when it's unpleasant. So hopefully you can hear with this, that this also clarifies the kind of freedom that we're going towards. It's not the freedom into a merely pleasant world. And again, there's such a hook around this when we seek a life of merely more pleasant experiences. And actually how much suffering comes from such a drive. I used to teach um, meditation in a drug rehab and in, in recovery communities, which I loved. And it was because there was a group of us that get together and this was super clear from the get-go. The, the, the mere pursuit of pleasure of how much misery comes from that. And that's one of the things I loved about that compared to the general public is there's just like a group of people that had experienced the suffering that comes from that kind of pursuit, which really is an insight, right? It's an insight about how suffering arises, how our discontent arises. And there can be such a draw to that of, can I just have more pleasant experiences? 
so my liberation around the raisins was different. The freedom was simply being okay that it was an unpleasant experience. So when I fully wake up, probably when I have an oat, a, a bowl of oatmeal with raisins in it, it will still be unpleasant. <laughs> but I won't be cursing it. There'll be an okayness with it. This is important to remember, the, the freedom that we're going towards. Life can be filled with so much unpleasantness, sometimes so much pleasantness or so much neutrality. And the freedom is, how is the mind relating to that? The okayness around that. Dropping like the stories I had about my brother Monk in the kitchen and how he's being passive aggressive. We're always creating these kinds of stories that, that confine ourselves and confine others and confine our relationships. So here it is, here's the freedom. How's your mind relating to unpleasant experiences on this retreat? That's the key. Your freedom can happen right now. It's right in the relationship. It's not what's going on. It's how the mind's relating to what's going on. And if only it was around unpleasant experiences. But you might notice how our minds complicate even pleasant experiences. And I think it's harder to see. Sometimes the, the ouch of that isn't as apparent. Again, a time I, I remember that was, this was uh, so clear to me. I was doing a three-month retreat in, in Burma and for one of the midday meals, uh, a number of Burmese families had donated um, enough for all of the yogis and the monastics on the retreat to have ice cream with, um, with lunch. And at that time, chocolate ice cream was a very pleasant experience for me and a lot of pleasant vedna. And also it was really quite moving. I mean, it, during, especially in that time, this was in the early 2000s, um, just the generosity to, 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 to expend that kind of money in Burma for something uh, like that, like ice cream, was really quite moving in terms of the generosity. And there was something really powerful about the generosity while I was practicing there. So anyway, here I was, I was sitting down and um, with uh, a, a plate of white rice and overcooked vegetables and a small bowl of chocolate ice cream. And I remember noticing the chocolate ice cream melt in the Burmese heat. So I, of course I thought the, the wisest thing to do would be to eat the chocolate ice cream first. <laughs> I thought it was wisdom, but I think now I realize something else was going on. <laughs> and I wanted it so much that I didn't even taste it when I ate it. It was so tragic. And I realized that so many of the pleasant experiences in my life, that was my relationship to it. There's so much excitement or wanting, I wasn't even there for it. You ever notice that? What a tragedy. We, we miss our lives. We're actually not living our lives. And when I'm lost in wanting, it has a sense of survival. I want more of it because I think that's where my survival is going to be. And I need to step out of the surviving and back into living. And I think that's one of the promises of this path is to be here fully. Also for the richness of the pleasant experiences that arise. And, and what a great place to explore this. For example, in your walking meditation. Have you noticed the beautiful place that you're in? How is the mind relating to it? When is there a, a quality of actually savoring and opening to that? And when is there a tightening or grasping? It can be so subtle. Sometimes I just notice the body tightening around a pleasant experience. And just noticing that there can be, a, again, an, an opening to the savoring of that experience. It's a skill. Maybe a little bit more about the pleasant. I, I do want to name that.
the challenge around the pleasant because uh, sometimes it's not seen. Uh, sometimes it can be even scary to open up to the pleasant. We can feel like we're, we're uh, losing control in some way or we don't deserve it. There's a poem by Alison Luderman that, that really speaks to this. She begins, I'm scared to confess to happiness. I'm scared. I'm scared to confess to happiness. I know the jealous fates in their dolorous heaven, how they love to feast on the heart. I know they've already marked the spot where one of us dies and the other stands open-mouthed and uncomprehending as dirt closes over our one song. But for just this moment, I want what I have. Just for this moment, I want what I have. Have you noticed that it can be scary to confess, to open to happiness, to joy, to pleasantness? It can tear us. Sometimes when I'm, I remember being on a concentration retreat and going for uh, walking meditation. This was at Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in, in Washington. And the beauty was so striking and I felt like there was such an openness. It had a kind of tearing to it. Can you truly confess to the pleasant experiences? And what a beautiful description of what it is to savor a pleasant experience, to want what you have in this moment. Do you hear the contentment? I invite you to explore that, that sense of being with pleasant rather than the reactivity around it. The other thing that I think is important to remember around pleasant experiences, or I mean around Vedana, this pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, is I don't need to figure out why something's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So for example, with the raisins in my oatmeal, I didn't have to figure out if something like happened to me with raisins and oatmeal when I was growing up. You know, if like my mother tortured me with raisins in my oatmeal and now it's coming out while I'm a monk and now it's... And I am making light of it. And I, I, I want to say there is a place for that kind of exploration of kind of our, our psychological conditioning. There's a real place for that. But that's different than the practice that we're doing. And I think it's really good to be clear about what practice we're engaged in because we can water down both of them if we're not clear about it. And in this, this practice of simply being present, we just notice if something's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We don't need to know the why. And even the same sound, even the sound of the bell can be pleasant one moment and unpleasant the next moment. It's just noticing what flavor is there. Just very simple, the, the very simple data of what's coming in. Okay, so another understanding of this, of how this works in terms of our freedom. I was gonna try on something new. You, you all are the guinea pigs for this other way of teaching. You know, when we, we, we're up here teaching, so often we're teaching kind of audially. And as you know, there's so many different kinds of learners in the world. So we're going to give this a try. And, and we're going to go into a different world, which is mathematics. We'll see how this goes. It will be either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. <laughs> and then you get to notice what your mind does around it. And you might not be able to see this, but we'll see how this goes. Okay, let's give this a try. So, let me see. Can you see that? That's suffering equals pain times resistance. So our dukkha, our discontent, what does it equal? It equals pain, which is just unpleasant vedana. It's just another word for unpleasant vedana. Times resistance. And what we have most influence over, not control, so this is important, that I, have, I can influence the resistance part of the equation more than other, any other part of the equation. I can't control it. If you think you can control it, you're in bad, gonna be in bad shape. You'll see that you can't control it on retreat, but we can influence it. And so let's put some numbers in here. And I, I kind of apologize for doing this, like doing mathematics right in the middle of like a seven day retreat. We'll see how this goes. If you melt down, you can go to one of the managers. Okay, so you, got, so you have a, 
let's say we have a pain of 100 units times a resistance of 100 units. 100 times 100 is... Oh, <laughs> so good. We're not having math like <laughs> tests in this uh, thing. I think it's 10,000, right? So we'd have a suffering of 10,000. If we, if we half the resistance through our practice, so we have a resistance of 50 and we have a pain of 100, how much suffering do we have? 5,000, right? So the same amount of pain, but less suffering. This is what we have to start to see and we have to distinguish between pain and, and, and resistance and pain and suffering, and how, how, how suffering has both pain and resistance, and pain is just pain. So one example of this, while I change this um, equation. The first time I really got this important aspect of uh, the equation was around sitting meditation, where I was sitting in meditation, and there was a lot of pain, and there was a lot of resistance. And then, miraculously, I was just being present, the resistance dropped. There was no resistance. And I felt like it was the first time in my life that I actually understood what pain was compared to suffering. That I actually I could feel pain and be okay. And it was in that moment that I became really clear of the difference between suffering and pain. One was simply just pain without any resistance and then the suffering was filled with resistance. And I invite you to check this out around, especially around unpleasant sensations while you're sitting. Because it's going to clarify, the only way to clarify the difference between suffering and pain is through your own practice. You know, we can talk forever about it, but how do they feel different? And it's going to happen, the clarity is going to happen when you get a, a pure experience of pain with no resistance. To actually check that out. So I'm going to just put some other words in here. Let's see if we can do this. And this really fits with, I think, the experience around physical pain, but also emotional pain. I think this has been so helpful for me in terms of emotional pain, of sitting with it, sitting with it skillfully. There's unskillful ways of sitting with it. We have another, and I need to acknowledge, these uh, equations come from the teacher Shinzen Young, who some of you might know. He's really in the math and I'm very grateful for his uh, doing these. So here we have empowerment equals pain times equanimity. And you might notice through your struggles on retreat here that when there's a quality of okayness with pain, there's a sense of, there's a sense of empowerment. Like I, c I can deal with this. I'm okay with this. Okay, there's a huge in emotional tsunami happening, but I've been here before and I'm okay with it. And there's a kind of empowerment that comes with that. So again, you might wanna check that out. And then oppositely, just to fill out the equations, it's the same thing on the pleasant side of things, which is frustration equals pleasure times grasping. It's really the same, it's the same exact equation I gave you, but using a little bit different language that we can sense. And you, you can get the sense of a little bit of the frustration of still wanting that comes out of the pleasure times the grasping in terms of that. Check it out. What's the difference between the experience of something that's simply pleasant and something that's pleasant that's filled with a kind of grasping in it? The only way to get a sense of this is by investigating it, becoming curious. And then oppositely, one last one here. Satisfaction equals pleasure times equanimity. Or as Alison Luterman put it, for just this moment, I want what I have.
so how to practice this, how to get more of a, a taste of this. As I said, an invitation, a simple invitation around the pleasantness is just especially going outside in your walking meditation. While you're doing the walking meditation, stopping, allowing in some kind of pleasant experience. Noticing when there's, it, it tends towards being simply pleasant and there's a savoring of it. And notice when the grasping comes in. It can be a thought, man, I gotta come to Spirit Rock more often or I should go hiking more or... Maybe I should go backpacking or whatever it is. So it could come in a thought or a bodily sensation or wanting more of it. I don't, maybe I shouldn't go to the next walking meditation. This is, I mean, next sitting meditation. This is so great. I need more of this. And there's the tightening compared to just opening to the pleasant. And the same with the unpleasant, checking it out. For example, maybe in the sitting meditation when there's an unpleasant sensation. And again, uh, making sure that you're, you're exploring it in the realm of being with the pain. If you're trying to white-knuckle it through the pain, then you know <laughs> there's the resistance. <laughs> and sometimes I need to move if the pain is too much to really become curious about it. But I also want to give an example of, of how this can be so helpful for sometimes the more intense dukkha in our life, or on retreat, I should say. And another story about this. So uh, once upon a time, I was on a month-long retreat. And it was a samadhi retreat. And in the early morning, it was so quiet. And the mind was starting to collect around the breath, and it was so pleasant. And in the hall, in the meditation hall, the person sitting in front of me noisily takes out their journal in the middle of the sit and starts scribbling in their journal and then flips the page and it sounded so loud, I cannot tell you. And it was such an incredibly unpleasant experience. And I thought, okay, I just need to sit with this. But it just kept on going and going. It was just like, it felt like they were writing a novel in the middle of our sit. (laughs) I was so pissed off. I was like this far from getting out of my seat and just being like, knock it off. (laughs) Which would have been unskillful, (laughs) just to be clear about that. (laughs) And so I I wanna talk about um, how I uh, practiced with this. Now first was kind of the frame of, of kind of like, okay Brian, you're having like a complete emotional breakdown because somebody's writing in the journal you might want to take a look at this. <laughs> and then what I needed is, is what I call the yes. And what I mean by the yes is, if I get the yes in my practice, everything else can unfold, but it, it can be really tricky to, to get to the yes. And what I mean by the yes is, is when I can say, yes, this too is my practice. Yes, this too is my practice, and this is the heart of my practice because this is where dukkha is, and I'm so interested in suffering and how it happens. Yeah. It's tough to get to. So I do try to boil it down to just one word, yes. This is it. This is so ripe. So I'm not going to be paying attention to the breath any longer in this experience, right? I take that as my experience. I have the yes. I'm interested in what's going on. And then the next step for me, a lot of times when, when dukkha is intense, is self-compassion. So of course, I just gave you a story a little bit where I was minimizing my suffering. I kind of get over it. Which can be great because it can bring some lightness, but there's a danger to it because it can minimize what I'm going through. What I need to touch is, I'm having a hard time. I don't need to compare it to any other suffering in the world right now. Just noticing that right now I'm having a hard time and I actually care about it. And when I care, I soften. And to me, that's such a gateway into being present and such an important piece. So the yes, I'm having a hard time. This is difficult, and I care. Nothing more than that. I don't have to figure out the solution or figure out why. I just acknowledge this is difficult. And then once there's a softening, 
then I can become curious about the experience. And what I started to become curious about was the mixture. It's not like I, there's, that there's an unpleasantness and then there's some kind of reactivity. It's all mixed together. So there's a kind of tracing back. So it's important to see that this isn't happening sequentially. And I just noticed that, oh, the writing and the tur page, turning of the page, it has an unpleasant flavor to it. Oh, and this is the flavor of the reactivity. There's a tightening in my, in my whole system. And those are two different things. One's the unpleasantness and one's the reactivity. And all I need to do is see them. That's it. Just see it. It's that simple. Because with the seeing, what starts to arise is a kind of space around the experience. I'm not trying to get rid of the reactivity or the unpleasantness, but there's a space that I, it's almost like I can start to rest in the space around the experience. And that's where the freedom is. And then with that, the reactivity can start to dissipate. So you see how I can influence the reactivity, but I can't control it. And it's just the simple noticing that allows for a kind of space around the, the experience. This is the gateway to fully be with the pleasant experiences in our life the un, and the unpleasant experiences with our life and the neutral ones. And the neutral ones can be really quite subtle and also the reactivity can be uh, quite subtle around them. What you might notice is when there's a neutral experience, sometimes when the breath is neutral, there can be a kind of checking out or sometimes what gets um, intertwined with is the kind of boredom. And all it takes is just the noticing of that because that's when the noticing is most, most powerful because when I'm noticing, I'm no longer checking out. Again, to, to be, be curious about that. Okay, so that's, that's Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Getting clear about the difference between something that's unpleasant filled with reactivity, with aversion, and something that's merely unpleasant. There's your freedom. The same with pleasant. Pleasant, it's simply pleasant compared to pleasant intertwined with grasping. And neutral, when something's just simply neutral. And the taste of freedom of that, that's a taste of freedom when there's no reactivity in the mind that's going in that direction. And then we can actually embrace really what I feel like our humanness. Sometimes we idealize what awakening is in, in, in a way that we're trying to become inhuman. Something more real and practical about this. I also want to share with you briefly, it's probably a danger to share it briefly, but the way it is. And something else that arises out of reactivity that I think is important to name and just to touch upon it. We might go into it a little bit more in depth just because it's so much the, uh, one of the essential teachings of the Buddha is to see that my creation of a kind of self, which is actually a kind of reactivity, is also intertwined with my suffering. And just being able to see the arising of this can be so helpful. And I want to share with you a poem that exemplifies this and also gives us a practical gateway to explore this. And it's from the poet uh, Virginia Hamilton Adair. She, was, um, she lived in Claremont, California, actually kind of below the Zen Center that I trained at. We were, I was up at this place called Mount Baldy Zen Center. So if you're in Claremont and you go up the San Gabriel Mountains um, just outside of L.A. there, Mount Baldy Zen Center is up there. And she used to come up to do session up there. And she wrote a poem about her experience uh, during Sashin. It's called Zazen, you know, the Japanese, the, the Zen word for, for meditation. She begins, she says, when I first floundered in, no one knew me, not even myself. Staggering under a Saratoga trunk, crammed with humiliations bottled like urine samples, nail kegs of anger, carbons of abusive letters, chemistry quizzes with Fs, even the horse I never had, and the two casseroles left over from the dime a dip supper. 
No one remarked that I had brought too much. I was wearing three fur hats donated by opulent cousins, my feet encased in cement ever since the failure of the patio project, and my mouth full of barbs as an old trout. No one praised me on my appearance. The trunk fell off my back, disgorging its unusual contents at my stone feet, which also came off. The fur hats tumbled like a moth-eaten avalanche, bearing a small monk. No one noticed. My sweat began to dry. I folded myself into one piece. No one. Have you noticed what you brought to the retreat in your Saratoga trunk or your suitcase? It's amazing what we bring, and I so appreciate her list, right? The chemistry quizzes with Fs. This is a real kicker. The horse I never had. And isn't it great that nobody sees what you bring to retreat? It's such a relief. <laughs> It's one of like, the saving graces, I think, of my life, knowing that nobody sees what's in my mental suitcase. But it's a trip, isn't it? And you could say, this, we construct a self around these things. Just the, if you think of the chemistry quizzes with Fs, you can go either way. How we do in school determines so much of how we shape who we are. Have you noticed that? It can shape so much of who we are. Or even if we do good in school, and then sometimes it's the things we get or the things we didn't get, the horse we didn't get, determines how I hold myself, how I identify myself. We bring too much around with us, and it's so confining. And hopefully you can hear the confinement that comes with some of these stories that she's carrying around. Have you noticed how confining the stories are? Whether it be the story of being the bad meditator or the good meditator, the one that doesn't fit here, the one that so fits here, the one that you hate, the one that's no good. So many selves, so confining. And if only we did it to ourselves, right? Have you noticed how we do this to others? I have a friend who grew up in a family who really quite <laughs> rigid around this. The parents, she was telling me, you know, like her older sister, her older sister was their autistic one, so she, she would get affirmed for when she was drawing. But if she got interested in mathematics or academics, it'd be like, that's not your, that's not your place. Your brother is the one who's good at that. This is what we're going to affirm in your life. We're going to give you drawing books, but we don't really care about your grades. The one who's interested in mathematics, they'll affirm the academic aspect, but they, she shouldn't be playing the piano. That's for her, her other sister. And we do this. We do this to each other. We create someone that's so confining as if we know each other. We create this concept you know, there's, there's, there's whole systems of oppression that's been, been built on this, of how we confine the narrow identities. And I want to point out before I, I say more about this, there is a place for identity. There is a place for a sense of self. So I, I, I want to say that there's nothing wrong with that. It's, what's important is to see that it's just a construction. It's important to, to explore aspects of the sense of self or a sense of identity on many different realms. It could be taking up the identity of, which has been so important for me at times, the construct of whiteness, of being a white person. So important if we're really interested in being in the world in a different way, in a non-oppressive way, because so much unspoken or unseen privilege can come with that. Or sometimes the places where we're not in the dominant group, to actually have an identity that's not determined by the dominant group. 
So this is essential, but not to be hooked by it, to utilize it, yet be free. So back to not-self, this, this quality of going beyond the self. It, it's beginning to see that it's just a construct. So just some examples of this. This comes from Joseph Goldstein, which I find so helpful. He gives the example of when you look up into the night sky and you see the Big Dipper. And it's realizing that actually there's not a Big Dipper up there. <laughs> it's just your mind has connected the dots to create the Big Dipper. And what can be so, so freeing is to notice that that's just a construction because we can get so lost in the construction or a rainbow, seeing the rainbow but knowing that it's the play of light rather than something that's solid, to savor it but not to make it more solid than it actually is. So how do you get a taste of this in the practice? Oh, I guess I, I also want to say, this is a tricky subject just because of the language that we use. Language determines so much of how we, how we um, view experience. And we, we uh, for maybe better or for worse, we have a language where there's um, a subject to every verb, or most of the time. Often our con- construction in our language is there's a subject to a verb. Who runs? I run. Who walks? I walk. Who breathes? I breathe. And so to get a sense of that there's not a self behind experience can be difficult because we've been so conditioned by language. So if this is confusing, it's because of the language you've learned. <laughs> Ways to get a, a, begin, a beginning sense of this. It can be around labeling your experience. So you're paying attention to the feeling of the breathing and it's noticing just the moment where you're paying attention to the breath and the mind gets lost in thought and then there's that moment of noticing that thinking is happening. And that's why I find it so helpful in that moment to say thinking, planning, remembering. Because what's not in that label is I. And that's been one of the biggest break, a big breakthrough in my practice is getting a feeling sense of thinking is just thinking. It has nothing to do with me. It just arises. How many of the thoughts have happened on this retreat that you decided to think? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) If you could decide all those thoughts, we wouldn't be here. (laughs) Get a taste of that. It's just just what the mind does. It, It secretes thoughts. That's not me. That's a taste of not self. Or the breath, noticing that the breath is simply happening. Sometimes I'll use the passive voice. Oh, breathing is happening. Oh yeah, this is the feeling of it. For other people, sometimes there's a, a sense of walking meditation where there's more of a quality of flow or where there's walking is just happening. You ever have that sense when you're out in nature where there's just walking happening. There's, there's less of you. Maybe there's still a sense of self, but it's thinner. That's what I, Donald Rothberg, Rothberg, a teacher, talks about the thinning of the self where there's less of a self there to get a taste of that. So you might have tastes where the, where the self is a little bit thinner around the thinking or an emotion arising or eating or tasting or swallowing, just something that's unfolding. I invite you to open up to that and to feel the freedom around that, the lack of confinement. And around these kind of flavors of not-self, some are wow and some are not wow. (laughs) Don't worry if they're grand or not. They can be so basic, so ordinary. But seeing them again and again and again allows for a different way of being in the world. What is a description of this different way of being in the world? Or you could say moving into living rather than surviving. I'd like to share with you a, a short poem by the Zen poet Ryokan that I think expresses this so clearly. To, to step out of this confinement of this narrow sense of self. He begins, he begins by asking the question, my legacy, what will it be? If 
find it a powerful question. What, what, what will be the legacy of your life? What will come of your life? My legacy, what will it be? Flowers in spring, the cuckoo in summer, and the crimson maples of autumn. My legacy, what will it be? Flowers in spring, the cuckoo in summer, and the crimson maples of autumn. What kind of legacy will you leave with this one life of yours? Will it be all around some kind of entanglement of me and mine and some kind of self? Or will it be around these experiences where there isn't some kind of self? The flowers in spring, the cuckoo in summer, and the crimson maples of autumn. So may our exploration of both these aspects, this exploration of Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and also opening up to this, these small tastes of, of not-self lead to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. Let's just sit for a moment here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.